I've been a pastor for 15 years here as of July 1st, and today I will be doing something I've never done before, at least from the pulpit. I'm going to dance, sing, and no, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't be a good look. I'd have to make sure Anna and Andreas are on deck, a couple nurses in the building, make sure I'm good afterwards. I would need oxygen and all that. First thing I'm going to do that I never do is I want to give a long-distance shout-out to the soldier family. So, guy Ashley and his wife, Octavia, have been essentially online members of our church. They, they, they recently sent in, well, they've done this a few times, but this is one that I just want to read. Says, dear Pastor Allen and pastoral staff, I present this offering. So they've given financial contributions to our church. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, may this offering bless your church and your ministry. Continue to teach and preach the authentic word of God. These spiritual truths are great for the soul. The messages you have been, have been leading are a unique perspective that is drawing my interest. I am learning and understanding the supernatural perspective of God's word. Keep it up, be encouraged. I'm sure there are many like myself who are learning and learning the messages you are presenting. Your brother in Christ, Ashley Soldier. I just wanted to shout them out because this is not the first time they've done this. And I just want to acknowledge you, brother, and your family. I know you're watching online. So thank you. They are from Prairie View, Grand Prairie, Texas, I think. So they're watching from Texas. So hopefully you and your family will be able to come up. We'd love to have you join us if you can. That's the first thing I'm doing. The second thing I'm going to do, I'll explain in just a moment. Now, if you are a guest here, let me just say this on the front end. We are a church that believes the Bible, preaches the Bible. We trust the Bible as our source of authority. I'll say, you'll understand why I'm saying that in a second. We trust the Bible as our source of authority. We believe the Bible. We teach the Bible. But today we're going to do something a little different. And I'll explain in just a second. Last week, previously at The Rock, we are in Genesis chapter 6, and we read verses 1 through 4, which are arguably the most debated, controversial, or at least top three in all of the Bible. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And there's so much that's happening. At the beginning of last week's message, I said we were going to answer two questions. Who are the sons of God and who are the Nephilim? But we really only answered who are the sons of God. That was intentional. I like playing with y'all a little bit. It's part of what I get to do as a pastor. If it offends you, plan the church and make sure you don't do that. All right, I gave three views last week. There's three views. One is called the Sethite view, which is basically that the line of Seth, after Abel was murdered, that Seth, godly men from Seth, married the ungodly line of Cain, who married, who, who, who murdered Abel. The second view was called kingship view, where these are talking about particular kings that are called the sons of God that marry any women they choose, multiple women, and it introduces the idea of polygamy. And the third, the third view is the angelic view, where the sons of God who are called angels leave heaven, come to earth, have sex with women, have children, and it creates chaos in the world. That's what we talked about last week. I'm not going to reiterate all that was said. That message is online, but I'm going to build on what I talked about last week. If you were here, then you know that my view is the third view that the sons of God were, are angels. 
And I gave my explanation as to why, so I'm not going to go back into that. But I also said this at the end of the message. If the sons of God are not angels and the Nephilim are not the offspring of angels and humans, then there is a huge component that all Jews would misunderstand and would affect our understanding. That's how I ended. Today, I intend to make good on that promise and explain what I'm talking about and why I believe the angelic view is the correct view. Let me make sure we understand what we're doing in this series. This series is, is us trying to understand why the biblical writers wrote what they wrote, what they believed, and what the people who received it believed. This isn't about if you agree or disagree. This isn't about that. So if you hear some stuff today you disagree, cool. I have no problem with it. You can disagree. You can disagree with everything that's said today all the sources, all of it, and still glorify God with your life. What we're trying to understand, though, is what did the Jews then think? What shaped their worldview? Why did they have more of a supernatural worldview than the one we have? We are selective in our supernaturalism. We believe in angels and demons, and we believe in that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We believe in miracles, so we're selective in our supernaturalism, but there's aspects of our supernaturalism that's truncated. We don't get it because we live in the age of the scientific age. They did not. And the Bible wasn't written to address scientific questions. It was written to address the worldview of their day. And that's what this series is about. So to continue on from last week, we need to go back to two passages in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1. I don't want to make two observations, or one from both of them, that I didn't make last week. Beginning in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, and I quote, I'm reading from the ESV translation, it should be on the screen. It says this, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep up Keep the unrighteous, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's 2 Peter, and we're going to look again at Jude, verses 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged and sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I want to make a brief comment about what it means to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. When we say the, the Spirit inspired, 2 Timothy 2, 3, right? For the Spirit inspired, right? The Word of God was inspired. Men wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let me give a brief disclaimer on what that means. Unless it's predictive prophecy, something that hasn't happened yet, 
or some vision that can sometimes be an apocalyptic vision like Daniel, Revelation, unless it's something like that, or if it's Ezekiel 1 or Isaiah 6, these, these walking into the throne room of God, unless it's something like that, the Holy Spirit doesn't usually give new information that the writers of the Bible wouldn't have already been somewhat familiar with. The Spirit doesn't do that. That's called Gnosticism. It's when you get this special revelation from God that only a few people get it. That's not how it worked. These men were not in a trance writing, and then when they were done, what did I write? It didn't work that way. The Spirit does not give out new information except under the categories that I listed. And Jesus didn't either. In fact, we have multiple examples of Jesus in the New Testament saying stuff like this in Matthew 5. Here's what he says in Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount, right? Verse 17, and I quote. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then right after that, we all know Jesus would say stuff like this. You have heard it was said. Do not commit adultery. But I say, so Jesus isn't giving brand new information for the most part. In fact, if you look at John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, and Nicodemus doesn't get it, and Jesus says to him, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? If you don't understand this, then how will you understand spiritual things? So he expected Nicodemus to understand the concept. So the inspiration of God is not giving the New Testament writers something they didn't already have access to. It's clarifying what they already believed to be true, crystallizing it. With that in mind, here's the question. Where are Peter and Jude getting their information from? What Old Testament scene shows God putting angels in chains and in gloomy darkness? Where is Jude, get, Jude 2, 4? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into judgment, what Old Testament literature is he getting that from? The Spirit isn't giving him something new. Where is he getting that from? There's no Old Testament path. So you either have to think of one, it's either you imagine he's talking about some rebellion that happened before the world was created, and that's where you go. Understandable. But I think it's inaccurate. Where does Peter get this from? The angel sinned. This is Peter. Oh, he was close to the Lord. Maybe that's where he got it from. Where does Jude get this from? Are the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling? He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness 
until the judgment of the great day. So they're given the impression that there were some angels that sinned and are now in punishment awaiting the Lord. Where are they getting their information from? Because there's not one Old Testament passage that gives us this kind of insight. So either the Holy Spirit is giving them information that they never would have known about and none of us would have known about, and we just presume that this is what happened, or they're drawing from somewhere else. Hamburger B. Where did they get their information from? They got it from the book of Enoch. Peter and Jude got it from the book of Enoch. So what is Enoch? Here's what people say about the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, in some respects, is the most notable extant, which means existing, the most notable extant apocalyptic work outside the canonical scriptures. The Jewish apocalyptic or revelatory traditions collected in 1st Enoch were composed between the 4th century BC and the turn of the Common Era. In the name of the patriarch mentioned in Genesis 5:21. This is when Enoch walked with God and then Enoch was taken up. You guys, first human being, only a couple they can say that. Enoch and Elijah. Everybody else died. They didn't. It says this, the sheer size as well as the contents, historical context, and ongoing influence of this collection make it arguably the most important text in the corpus of Jewish literature from the Hellenistic and Roman periods. Roughly as large as the book of Isaiah, it comprises an extraordinarily broad range of material that we might define in modern categories as religious, scientific, intellectual, and social. In it, we are given a unique window into the diverse world of Palestinian Judaism in the three centuries before Jesus. So here's what we have to understand, because we're not wired this way. We're wired that it's the Bible, and that's it. If it doesn't say it in the Bible, I don't want to hear it. But that's, act that's actually not true. That's what we say, but that's actually not true, right? Before I get to that, let me explain to you how the Israelites get their information. They have the Old Testament scriptures, the Law of the Prophets, the Tanakh. They have the intertestamental period writings, which is the, for us, from Malachi to Matthew, it was a 400-year period that we don't see any of those writings as inspired by the word of God, so they're not in our Bibles. Now, Catholics put them in their Bibles, and some Orthodox Christians put some of these in their Bibles. There's Apocrypha and then Pseudepigrapha. The Pseudepigrapha is what Enoch is, and it's called that because no one knows who wrote it. Even though it's called Enoch and attributed to Enoch, it surfaced in the 4th, 4th century, 3rd century B.C. So no one knows if he really wrote it, but... The information inside of it was so critical, it was one of the one book that was debated heavily should it be included in the canon of Scripture. So they have those writings, and then they have the New Testament Scriptures. Now, we must also remember this, that the people of God always use non-canonical, and by canon, I just mean inspired the Bible. We call it the canon of Scripture. Non-canonical would be like, we don't see that as the same as the Bible. 
but they always used non-canonical sources to shape their worldview about God. Let me give you proof. Listen to this list. You don't have to write it down, and I'm not going to repeat it. This isn't, the po- this isn't the point of the message. This is to make a point. The book of wars, the book of the wars of the Lord is referenced in Numbers 21.14. The book of the just in Joshua 10 and 2 Samuel 1.18. The book of the Acts of Solomon in 1 Kings 11.41. And by, when I say referenced, I mean the Bible will say, and you can read the rest of this in the book of such and such. We have no idea where these books are. They didn't matter to us. They're not the apocrypha or the pseudepigrapha. They're writings that the Jews referenced. Like, hey, further information comes from this. You know these books. They know these books. You got the book of the annals of the kings of Israel, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20. The book of the annals of the kings of Judah, 1 Kings 14, 29, 15, 7. The annals of Samuel the seer. The seer? That's like someone practicing magical arts. Why would the Jews be reading that and put it in the Bible like you can get more information from here? That's like saying reading the National Enquirer or something. Hey, get this and find out about people. The history of Nathan the prophet, 2 Chronicles 9, 29. The annals of Shemamiah the prophet and Edo the seer. The an- I mean, I can go on. There's tons of books in the Old Testament where they're telling the people from the inspired word of God, don't remember these. Read these books for further information. To clarify what we're saying here, read these writings. This is normal for them. It's not normal for us in, in, in the same way but in a similar way. This is normal. In fact, one of the greatest gospel presentations in the Bible is found in the book of Acts, where Paul is talking to a group of people. It's called the Areopagus, or it's called Mars Hill, and he's talking to a bunch of philosophers and different people. That's what they did in their day. We, watch, we binge watch shows. They go listen to people talk, and whoever has the best explanation of how the world is, that's who we like. That's our superstar. Paul says this, He says, and he made from one man every nation. This is uh, Acts 17, beginning of verse 26. And he made from one one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For, and he makes a quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said your own poets. He says, for we are indeed his offsprings, quotation. So he's quoting from Epimenides and other Greek poets who were talking about Zeus and saying, no, no, what they're saying about Zeus, I'm telling you, they were actually talking about my God. This is normal for them. For the ancient Near Eastern Israelite A biblical worldview was not just what the Old Testament said. It included a supernatural understanding of the other worldviews around them and that their content, and they believe their content in reality, in supernatural reality, was talking about Yahweh, even though it wasn't written in honor of him. So Paul could quote Greek philosophers that we today would be like, no, that's that's, that's heretic, that's heresy. No, he's talking about someone else. And Paul says, man... He's not far from each of us. In fact, your own poets who are writing about Zeus are really talking about Jesus. This is not new to them. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
that all theology is good. No, that's not what I'm saying. We trust and believe the Bible. We trust and believe the Bible. But from a supernatural sense, we know that these narratives are coming from and the gods that they attribute all this power to are really talking about the God we serve. And there are times when God shows up and says, nah, fam. That's my translation, obviously. So I'm not saying that all theology we should, no, no, no. But I understand what you're, when you're talking about Allah and worshiping him and he's one and he's benevolent and all that, you're talking about Jesus for real. You just don't know that. The ancient Near Eastern Israelite would see books like Enoch as giving information about things that the Bible doesn't fully explain. They had no problem with that. I could have named seven more books that are referenced in the Old Testament. But in reality, we do the same thing. Today, we just call them commentaries. If you're reformed, then you know that you've either read or heard referenced the Institute, Calvin's Institutes. I know people who quote theologians more than the Bible. They can tell you what John Calvin said, but can't tell you what Jesus said in the Bible. They can tell you what this pastor said. We do it too. We trust other writings that are not the Bible to help us understand the Bible, and this is no different. Though Enoch is a little more serious than a commentary because we know who wrote them, and we know they're not trying to say this is directly from God, like a book like Enoch. Having said that, here's the second thing I'm going to do today I've never done. I'm going to explain from non-biblical sources and how they relate to the Bible. I've never once in 15 years of preaching here preached from a different text that wasn't the Bible. So this will be a first for me. I'm not a heretic. I'm trying to make a point to help you understand this is why the Israelites thought the way they thought and why Jude and Peter made some of the comments that they made and why there's one issue that affects everything if the sons of God are angels and the Nephilim are the offspring, the sons, the children of angels and humans. All right, there are three parallels in, in Enoch. We're going to look at these. The angelic rebellion, the judgment from God, and then the issue that I'm talking about. Let's go to Genesis 6. We're going to read these two verses, and then we're going to go see how Enoch explains these verses. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. That's what we get. Here's what Enoch says, ironically, in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1 of Enoch, 6, verse 1. It says this. In those days, when the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, Come, let us choose wives for ourselves, wives for ourselves, from among the daughters of man, and, and beget us children. And Semyaz, being their leader, said unto them, 
I fear that perhaps you will not consent to this deed that it should be done, and I alone will become responsible for this great sin. But they all responded to him, let us swear an oath and bind everyone among us by a curse not to abandon this suggestion, but to do the deed. Then they all swore together and bound one another by the curse, and they were all together 200, and they descended into Ardos, which is the summit of Hermon. Real quick, remember when we did the sermon, I talked about the transfiguration and where Jesus went and transfigured? That was called Mount Hermon. And I said that Jesus did that because the angels decided to rebel from Mount Hermon. And that particular location was considered one of the most evil and demonic places. And Jesus decided to show up and glow up. That was Jesus saying, I'm outside. And they and they called the Mount Armon, for they swore and bound one another by a curse. And their names are as follows. Semyaz, the leader of Erekeb. Ramael, Tamael, Ramiel, Daniel, Ezekiel, Barakiel, Asel, Amaros, Bartael, Anel, Zakael. It's a lot of L's around here, right? You know why? L should die, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to get there. I'm going to skip the rest of them names if y'all don't mind. <laughs> y'all don't mind. Y'all can read them on the screen. These are the chiefs. These are their chiefs of tens and all of others with them. All right, so here we have in Enoch 6, 1 through 8, here's what we have. Angels led by Semyaz, they make a pact to leave heaven and take wives and have children. All right, now keep in mind, they've been watching humanity all this time, right? That's the indication the daughters of men, even in Genesis, it tells us the daughters of men were beautiful and the sons of God were like, wow. They, Adam wasn't the only one that said, flesh of my flesh. Blood. They saw the women and were like, man, we, we don't have that up here. So they decided, let's go. They make a pact. That was a conspiracy. Here's the assault. Here's what happens. Enoch 7, verse 1. And they took wives unto themselves, and everyone, respectively, chose one woman for himself. And they began to go unto them. And they taught them magical medicine, incantations, the cutting of roots, and taught them about plants. All right, so here's the assault. You get, they go down and have sex with women, and they teach them magic arts. Teach them magic arts. There's a lot to say, so I'm not, I'm not going to comment on all of these. There's other things i really got to comment on, but not this yet. Now, 7-2 through chapter 8 is focusing on Genesis 6-4. It says this, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right, that's Genesis 6-4. Here's Enoch's account of that, beginning in verse 2 of Enoch chapter 7. And the women became pregnant and gave birth to great giants, whose height was 300 cubits. These giants consumed the produce of all the people until the people detested feeding them. So the giants turned against the people in order to eat them, and they began to sin against birds, wild beasts, reptiles, and fish, and their flesh was devoured, the one by the other, and they drank blood, and then the earth brought an accusation against the oppressors. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Ezazel, 
taught the people the art of making swords and knives and shields and breastplates. And he showed to their chosen ones bracelets, decorations, shadowing of the eye with antimony, ornamentation, the beautifying of the eyelids, all kinds of precious stones and all coloring tinctures and alchemy. And there were many wicked ones and they committed adultery and erred and all their conduct became corrupt. Amasras taught incantation, that's like spells, right? And the cutting of roots and, Am and Amaros, the resolving of incantations and Barkrael, astrology. And Kokrael, the knowledge of the signs. And Tamel taught the seeing of the stars. And Asdarel taught the course of the moon as well as the deception of man. And the people cried and their voice reached unto heaven. Now keep in mind, this isn't about whether you accept it or agree with it, right? This is about, this is literature that the ancient Near Eastern Israelites believed to be true and explained what's happening and what happened in the ancient world. So you got these, are, here's the consequences. Women give birth to giants. So they were 300 cubits. Okay, a cubit is anywhere between 18 to 21 inches. It's from the elbow to the fingertip. 18 to 21 inches is a cubit. Okay, so if you think 18 inches, so you do the math. 18 inches times 300 and then translate that into feet. You do the math. So they were 300 cubits, all right? The second consequence, the second consequence, guys, I know that this is like interesting stuff and stuff, but I need to get through a lot. So all the commentary is distracting to me. Let me get through this. We can talk about it afterwards. I need to get through this. There's a lot to talk about. The giants abused creation. Verses three through five. It says they ate all the food, they drank blood, it said they sinned against birds, wild beasts, reptiles, fish. Their flesh devoured by one another. They did all these things, right? Makes sense why God said, I'm going to destroy everything. Yeah. All the, even the creeping things on the, the birds of the air. Because at first I was like, well, what did the birds do? <laughs> but they were also corrupted by these Nephilim, these giants. The third consequence is it says, as Azazel teaches people how to make and use weapons. If we had time to read all of it, you'd see that that was to fight back against the giants. So there's this war because people are tired of feeding these giants. They're destroying everything. The fourth consequence is it says, wickedness rise to the surface alongside adultery. It says, and there were many wicked ones in verse 2 of uh, uh, Enoch 8, and they committed adultery and erred, and all their conduct became corrupt. This corresponds to Genesis, God saying that their inclination was only evil all the time. So here you have adultery and a bunch of other corruption. And, the, and then the fourth consequence, or the fifth, was that other angelic beings start teaching astrology, zodiac signs. This inevitably leads to worship of created things instead of the creator. Now you're impressed with stars and signs, and, and it makes sense because you get religions who religions like Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, these are all these are considered many by many people the first religions, the oldest religions at least, thousands of years old. And lastly, in verse 4, 
And the people cried, and their voice reached unto heaven. Their sin got heaven's attention. This all is backdrop of just really three verses. Genesis 6, 1, 2, and then verse 4. Giving all this backdrop to this. Now let me give you a biblical reason for potentially agreeing with this perspective that all the Israelites agree with. Let me give you a biblical reason why this deserves at least the consideration of being more accurate than just your visceral response. Leviticus 16. Listen to this. This is by many accounts called, in your Bible, said the Day of Atonement. Listen to Leviticus 16. Beginning in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in, the, in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Here's a biblical reason why we should consider what Enoch is saying. Because Azazel is just dropped into this scene without any reference as to who he is. If I had not read to you Enoch, none of us would know anything, have anything about, we would make guesses about Azazel. It's just dropped into this account. Now, what makes that compelling and this significant is the context in which his name shows up. His name is listed three times in the Bible and only in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 16. And why is it significant? Because it's the Day of Atonement. At the time of this writing, this was the holiest of days for the Israelites. Today in Judaism, the next day is, it's called Yom Kippur. In the Day of Atonement, this was national repentance, sacrifice, for sin, where God was forgiving the sins of the priests and all of the people of Israel. And to do this, God creates a ritual. It says, get a ram and two goats. Cast lots, and one of those goats you're going to lay hands on and transfer the sins of all of Israel on the head of this goat. And that goat is for Azazel. So God is saying all of the sin that Israel has done from last year's Day of Atonement till today is going to be on this goat, and that's for Azazel. 
Now, why would it be for Azazel, the sins of all these people just dropped into the Bible unless somehow Azazel is connected to serious sin against the Lord? It's there. Just dropped in. There's no other context for Azazel in our Bibles. So we're left to speculate, who is Azazel? And why is he so significant that he has a goat where the sins are transferred and coming into the wilderness, in a sense, towards him? You don't have to believe it, but the Bible at least acknowledges that the name Azazel is significant. The other thing that's compelling about this is Enoch was written at a time, well, actually, I'm going to say that. I'm going to come back to that. All right, let's do the judgment from God. So the cries get up to heaven in Enoch, and then we get judgment from God. Now, in our Bibles, these are four, these are four passages that deal with God's judgment, all right, or his attitude towards this. Genesis 6.3, God says this. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. All his days shall be 120 years. And then in verse 5 through 8, here's what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the, in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land and animals and creeping things in the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their, their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the whole earth. This is Enoch's commentary or backdrop of these passages of God, seeing the earth, saying he's going to destroy it. Here's Enoch's take, beginning in chapter 9. Then Michael Seraphel and Gabriel observed carefully from the sky, and they saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all the oppression being brought on upon the earth. And they said to one another, the earth from her empty foundation has brought the cry of their voice unto the gates of heaven. And now, O holy ones of heaven, the souls of people are putting their case before you, pleading, bring our judgment before the Most High. And they said to the Lord of the potentates, for he is the Lord of lords and the God of gods and the King of kings and the seed of his glory stands throughout all the generations of the world. Your name is holy and blessed and glorious throughout the whole world. You have made everything, and with you is the authority for everything. Everything is naked and open before your sight, and you see everything, and there is nothing which can hide itself from you. You see what Azazel has done, how he has taught all forms of oppression upon the earth, and they revealed eternal secrets which are performed in heaven and which man learned. Moreover, Semyaz, to whom you have given power to rule over his companions, cooperating, they went in unto the daughters of the people of the earth, and they laid together with them. And with those women, they defiled themselves and revealed to them every kind of sin. As for the women, they gave birth to giants to the degree that the whole earth was filled with blood and oppression. And now behold, 
the Holy One will cry, and those who have died will bring their suit up to the gate of heaven. Their groaning has ascended into heaven, but they could not get out from before the face of the oppression that is being wrought on the earth. And you know everything, even before it came into existence. And you see this thing, but you do not tell us what is proper for us that we may do regarding it, what we may do. This language is consistent with what we see in Scripture and other places. We see God coming to Moses in Exodus and being like, the cry of the people has reached heaven. God uses language like that, like he sees all of it. He says, the cry of the people has reached heaven. There's multiple occasions is this similar language used where angelic beings, a divine council, are bringing to God, this is what's going on, and God's like, all right, what are we going to do about it? We know this in 1 Kings 19. We talked about this last week. So the first response is angelic. Michael, Gabriel, two angels that we know of, Seraphel, they go to the Lord and plead the case. This is what's happening. Lord, what should we do? Now, this is a paradigm shift for us because we always think that God does everything and acts alone. We just think it's always the Lord did this and the Lord did that. God does everything and acts alone. But Scripture is replete with examples of God being like, you guys do that. You guys can handle it. Revelation 12, 7. And Michael and his angels went to war with Satan and his angels. God, he isn't going to war with God. He's going to war with Michael and his angels. You got Daniel for the prince of Persia. You got all these. Michael comes to help. This happens a lot where the angels are the ones being dispatched. Well, God is having a conversation, or they're coming to God. That's in our Bible. So this scene makes sense. Here's God's response after hearing the angels speak. Chapter 10 of Enoch. And then spoke the Most High, the Great and Holy One. And he sent Asurael to the son of Lamech, saying, Tell him in my name, hide yourself, and reveal to him the end of what is coming, for the earth and everything will be destroyed. And the deluge, which is the flood, is about to come upon all the earth, and that all that is in it will be destroyed. And now instruct him in order that he may flee, and his seed will be preserved for all generations. So in our Bibles it says, and God said to Noah, but there are times when it's actually angels saying it, but because they speak for God, it says God said it. You get Exodus 34, and it says Moses, God wrote the Bible, or, or, but it was Moses who wrote it, right? God said, no, you're going to write it because you broke them. And then it says, and God wrote for the." So God will take credit for the things that he tells people to do in his name. So it's not inconsistent that an angel may have told Noah than actually God himself. Here's what he continues in verse 4. And secondly, the Lord said to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot and throw him into the darkness. And he made a hole in the desert, which was in Dudael, and cast him there. He threw on top of him rugged and sharp rocks, and he covered his face in order that he may not see light, and in order that he may be sent into the fire on the great day of judgment, and give life to the earth which the angels have corrupted. And he will proclaim life for the earth that he is giving life to her. And all the children of the people will not perish through all the secrets of the angels which they taught to their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted by Azazel's teaching of his own actions, and write upon him all sin. So you hear what he's saying? This is where 2 Peter and Jude got it from, right here. 
they're quoting from Enoch chapter 10. They're getting there. They bond his azel hand and foot, throw him into the darkness. Remember what 2 Peter says? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, Peter, for if God, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness until judgment, where does he get that from? There's no passage in the Old Testament that tells us that, but Enoch chapter 10 does. This is what God's direct quote. So Peter, at the very least, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose to, quote, get his information and write from Enoch. And he's writing to people. He's not writing to us, remember. It's for us, but it wasn't written to us. He's writing to people that would have already believed this to be true. So he's reminding them, hey, don't forget what we know, that these angels are kept in gloomy darkness. Now, his context was, so if God can do that, he can save the righteous people. So it was to encourage you, you're suffering, God can spare you, save you, right? But he's getting his information, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're getting it from Enoch. There's no other passage, and it says it right here. Beginning, continuing in verse 10, in verse 9. And, and, and to Gabriel, the Lord said, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of adultery and destroy the children of adultery and expel the children of the watchers. Remember I told you last week that name would become important from Daniel 4, watchers? That's what they're called here, watchers, sons of God or watchers, the holy ones. These are angels. He says, and expel the children of the watchers from among the people. And send them against one another so that they may be destroyed in the fight for length of days have they not. They will beg you everything for their fathers on behalf of themselves because they hope to live an eternal life. They hope to teach one of them will live a period of 500 years. And then he says to Michael, and to Michael, God said, make known as Semyaz, Semyaza and the others who are with them who fornicated with the women that they will together, they will die together with them in their defilement. So understand, so you got Azazel who's responsible for teaching people humanity things that were only supposed to be known by angels. Azazel's teaching magic arts, astrology, and these other. And then you have Semyaz who's responsible for having sex with women. So there's kind of two different figureheads for two different kinds of rebellion that caused humanity to go berserk. And so God's commenting on all this, and he's weighing in. And he says in verse 12, and when they and all their children have battled with each other, and when they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for 70 generations underneath the rocks of the ground until the day of judgment of their consummation, until the eternal judgment is concluded. So you see all of this language of God judging them and what Peter and Enoch or, and Jude are responding to. It's like, oh, okay, they believed, inspired by the spirit, that this was true. And it wasn't just Enoch. There's a lot of literature that hits all of this. In fact, to my study and my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I don't think I am, but I could be, I don't think there's any Israelite interpretation of Sethite view or kings. There's no literature found anywhere that any Israelites thought the sons of God were the line of Seth or divine kings. All the literature is all like this. Now, the book of Jubilees might have a different account. The testimony of Moses might say something different. The book of Giants might say a little bit more. There's, but it's always this. It's never these non-supernatural views, nothing that I've come across. I haven't found anything close to that, and I've searched extensively. All of them point to, in some way, shape, or form, 
some supernatural reality that makes sense when you read Enoch's account and how the ancient Near Eastern Jew thought about their worldview. Their worldview was coming from literature like this. He's giving commentary on this stuff. So you got God sends angels and they speak on his behalf. Sariel to Noah, Raphael binds Azazel, Gabriel to destroy the Nephilim, Michael to Semyaz and the angels who rebelled. That's all God's response. So this is what the Bible's talking about. This is why the Israelites, at least, believed that the Nephilim and who they were. Now, last week I said that there was one issue that would be affected if the sons of God weren't angels and if the Nephilim were not the offspring of them, and that would be a huge category of not knowing what this means for the Jews and for us. And I intend to make good on that right now. And this is the question, who are the Nephilim? So we know that they are the sons of God, they're the offspring of angels and humans, but there's more. There's more. Now let, me, let me explain real quick what, what's happened in the book of Enoch since chapter 10. Remember in Enoch, he walked with God and was with God and God took him. That's what our Bible says. From chapter 12, beginning in chapter 12 and on, Enoch is essentially has like an Isaiah Ezekiel experience where he's taken into the presence of heaven and to the house of God, and it's described in these very, almost similar to Isaiah and Ezekiel 1. This, this scene, he's, it's just describing everything he's seeing. He's speaking in the first person, and he's basically like, these things were, he's describing it, fire coming from this way and, and glass and a white marble, and he's describing this angel going with him in the presence of God to have a conversation with God. And he gets to a point where he says, I couldn't handle it. He says, I fell to the ground and could not lift my head up to look because what I saw was just too magnificent. I just couldn't do it. That's consistent with Revelation. John hears Jesus' voice. Remember, John, the, John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. In Revelation 1, he hears Jesus, turns around, and sees him in that eternal glory. And John says, and I dropped dead. The dude that Jesus loved saw Jesus and was like, not today. <laughs> Drop. So the spirit had to pick him up. We're not going to be able to look at God and be like, oh, that's what. Drop. The spirit's going to have to pick us up. You can look. No, I can't look. You can look. No, I can't look. All right. They think we got angry up here. He couldn't handle it. And then eventually God says, all right, I need to talk to you. And here's what Enoch chapter 15 says. But he raised me up and said to me with his voice, Enoch, I heard, I then heard, do not fear, Enoch, righteous man, scribe of righteousness. Come near to me and hear my voice and tell the watchers of heaven on whose behalf you have been sent to intercede. So here's what happened. The angels, after they, they knew they were in trouble, they said, Enoch, can you go to God and plead on our behalf, intercede for us? Like, basically say, my bad. That's what they did. Like, my bad. Can we? Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, those same angels have watched God forgive humanity. Those same angels watched Cain kill Abel, and God be like, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put a mark on you so that anywhere you go, people will know, don't touch him, because in some way, shape, or form, he belongs to God. Those same angels 
watched God forgive all these human beings, these creatures that are far less than them. So it makes sense that they're like, look, we sinned just like they do. Go ask God to forgive us. And God says, no. He says, no. He says, for what, verse 3, for what reason have you abandoned, he's talking to them, telling Enoch, this is what you're going to say to them. For what reason have you abandoned the high, holy, and eternal heaven and slept with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of the people, taking wives, acting like the children of the earth, and begetting giant sons? Surely you, you used to be holy, spiritual, the living ones, possessing children. You have lusted with the blood of the people, like them producing blood and flesh, which die and perish. On that account, I've given you wives in order that seeds might be sown upon them and children born by them so that all the deeds that are done upon the earth will not be withheld from you. God's not saying I'm giving. He's saying I allowed you to do this so that when the punishment comes, it comes on everything that you did. I allowed this so that when you get judged, I'm punishing everything that you did. He says, indeed, you, verse six, formerly you were spiritual, having eternal life and immortal in all the generations of the world. That is why formerly I did not make wise for you, for the dwelling of the spiritual beings is in heaven. So he said, I didn't make wise for you because you're heavenly beings. But since you did that, I allowed it, so I'm going to destroy all of it. But listen to what he says right here, beginning in verse 8. He says, but now the giants, who are the Nephilim, who are born from the union of the spirits and the flesh, shall be called evil spirits upon the earth because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies because from the day that they were created from the holy ones, they became the watchers. Their first origin is the spiritual foundation. In other words, since they were created, the angels, their origin was spiritual. Their offspring, their children, when they die, are going to be evil spirits. He keeps going. He says this in verse 10, the dwelling of the spiritual beings of heaven is heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of the earth, which are born upon the earth, is the earth. The spirits of the giants oppress each other. They will corrupt, fall, be excited and fall upon the earth and cause sorrow. They eat no food, nor become thirsty, nor find obstacles. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of the people and against the women because they have proceeded forth from them. So what am I saying? That the ancient Near Eastern Israelite believed that demons mm -hmm. and evil spirits are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Mm -hmm. And it's a punishment from God. Demons are not fallen angels. They're angels who fell, had children. And the punishment of that is that those children, when they die, their spirits don't get to go to heaven. Those spirits roam the earth terrorizing people. That's their perspective. To them, demons are not fallen angels. Demons are disembodied spirits of the sinful union between angels and human beings. And when those children die and those children's children, their spirits become demons, evil spirits. Let me tell you why I believe this to be true, not just the, not all Israelites. Let me tell you why. One, in Scripture, we do not see angels described as demons or spirits at all. Even angels that rebel, they'll never call demons. 
We're used to calling them demons because we've just been conditioned to think that way. Because in modern theology, we just sort of flattened everything and just said it's satanic, it's demonic, and so we think demons are fallen angels. Demons, angels never lose their identity, they lose their privilege. Fallen angels lose their privilege, but their name is still angels. The Bible confirms this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, says this. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So Paul was appealing to them, don't take people to court and do all that. We're, we're better than that. We're going to judge angels. Well, why would we judge angels? What angels will we judge if angels are always good? No, we're going to judge angels. We're not judging demons. God's already judged demons. We're going to judge angels. Why would we judge angels? Because they sinned against the Lord. Who's going to judge them? I'm, I'm sure I'm not. Probably be in the courtroom like, yeah, we did. Hey, what's up? Hey, good to see you. You, you can't. You're coming too? We judge angels. Paul says that. You judge angels that sin. They're still angels. I think that's part of the judgment. You're not losing your identity. If you are a professing Christian in this room and you end up not making it because you really were living like a double life or your life didn't do it, part of the punishment of hell will be that you remember that you had a chance to believe. That identity doesn't change. That's partly what makes the punishment bad is you knew truth. You knew better. You're still who you were, but now you're being punished in spirit form. We know this. We know Revelation 12. I, caught, I mentioned it earlier. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Verse 7. And the dragon and his angels, not his demons, his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant who was called the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown into the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The Bible does not call Demons fallen angels. So demons come from somewhere else and they come from the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Demons and evil spirits. Second reason why I believe it to be true. Because demons and spirits are used interchangeably in the Bible. Luke chapter 8. Two quick passages in Luke and we're going to close. Here's what he says. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So this is a Gentile region of the area, non-Jewish. Non when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, Have you come what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the, bond, the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. You see that? See the interchange? See that? Look at this. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. But then it interchanges and said, but the, the demon. It's one and the same thing. The demon, unclean spirits, the same reality. Verse 30, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons entered him. Right, but we also know he, cast him, he told him to come out, the unclean spirit. The Bible interchanges these terms with them because they're of the same class. You are disembodied spirits of a rebellious union against God. 
So you roam the earth. You're, and I think specifically the unclean spirit term is how the Bible describes them as unclean. Luke 9, 37, same chapter, the next chapter, listen to this. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and I will hardly leave him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So a demon threw him down and Jesus rebuked it as an unclean spirit. You see the interchange. Demons, spirits, evil spirits, that is the judgment of the angels who rebelled against God, that your, your children are going to be punished both in this life, because I'm wiping out everything, including them, but they're also going to be punished when they die, because they are not, they're not, I'm not the father of them. In the supernatural world, demons are the entity, they're not an entity created by God, they're created out of rebellion against God. He's not the father of those spirits. But God created everything else. He created all the creatures. He created all of them. Genesis 1. He created humanity. He created the sons of God. All of those things, he created. This is my creation. The Nephilim, that's your creation. They don't have souls. They don't have that. They don't come from me. They're going to be evil spirits that will roam the earth. And that's what we experience to this day. This is what the ancient Near Eastern Israelites think demons were. What's ironic is that demons, there's only three uses of the term demon. This is another reason why I believe it. This is written in between, we call it the intertestamental period. So this was written after the Mosaic law and all that stuff, the law, all of that, right, where all this stuff would come from. Demons is only used three times in the Old Testament as we know it. It's only used three times. Once in Leviticus, once in Deuteronomy, and once in Psalm, I think, 116. Demons don't even show up from a literary perspective until Jesus comes. Then it's like demons seem like they're everywhere. Almost as if they know the time is here, we need to be active. They're not, you won't find the term demons in the Old Testament. So people often wonder, like, where do they come from then? Because the Old Testament doesn't mention demons. You mentioned religions like, or gods like Baal and and Asherah, all these different gods, but you don't really hear about demons. Three verses in the Old Testament. But you hear them, oh, they're all over the Gospels. All over the Gospels and, the, and Acts. This was written before demons were a thing, a big deal. And they say this is what they are, and so when they show up in the New Testament, for them, that's what they are. There's no biblical case for a demon being a fallen angel ever. There's an extra biblical case that they're disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And the way the Bible shapes and interchanges at terms, I believe they're right. George W.E. Nicholsburg <laughs> says this in his commentary about the book of First Enoch. 
That's a lot when you add the initials and then the last name. He must be really important. In a postmodern 21st century, the Enochic world seems strange, fantastic, and even weird. Falling angels mating with mortal women, the ghosts of dead giants roaming the earth, flights to heaven and bizarre visions about sheep and wild beasts. One should not be deceived, however. When read with care and empathy, the unfamiliar imagery comes alive to reveal a humanity much like our own. They struggle with violence, lies, disappointment, and lack of meaning, and they are pulled in opposite directions by hope and despair and the competing forces of high religious symbols and explosive human emotions. What he's basically saying is, look, we read it and think this is really weird stuff because it's just not our worldview, and we don't see that stuff a lot. You go to somewhere like southeastern India, though, they'll have a different perspective on this. They'll have a different perspective on this. His point is they're struggling with the same stuff. They just process it differently, more supernatural. We process it more scientific. But it's the same stuff. So if the Nephilim are not the offspring of angels and human beings, then we have no idea where demons and evil spirits come from. We have no idea. We won't have a good explanation for them. And many of us didn't anyway. Our explanation was, oh, they're fallen angels. No, a lot, fallen angels, a lot of them are in punishment. There's a different hierarchy there. And when we get to Ephesians 6 at the end of the series, there's a hierarchy there. Demons are on the low end of the totem pole. They scare us. You know, Hollywood makes it seem like they got all this power, like, man, the chairs flew across the room and all that. I mean, it's Hollywood. I mean, I don't I haven't been on the exorcism for real. I don't probably plan on it, but, um, you know, we don't know if that's how it really happens, but that's how it's presented to us. So we think, like, man, that has so much power. But at the end of the day, this dude was naked, had, what, 1,000 or 2,000 demons in him, super strong, saw Jesus and fell at his feet and then begged him to not cast him out of the region. There's a reason why for that that we'll get to after Genesis 11. But for now, this is what the Jews thought where demons come from, where evil spirits come from. The Bible interchanges those things, and as we see further along, I, I happen to believe that this is true. Let's pray. Lord, we know about, for us, we know about commentaries, and, and we use them, and we're okay with them. We don't ascribe to them any real authority. And Lord, we don't ascribe to Enoch the same authority as the scriptures. We do respect that there are certain aspects of this book, like the name of Azazel, in, 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 a, in a tone and, and passage as serious as the Day of Atonement. We respect that Enoch that seems to be the source for Peter and Jude. So this, is not, this isn't the same as what we would call a commentary or the writings of some theologian. We know how to process those. Even if we agree with them, we don't ascribe them to the same level. But inspired by, by your spirit, Moses mentions Azazel and some other things that we didn't cover today. Peter and Jude reference Enoch. This is kind of normal. So as we move forward in processing this world, 
It's a crazier world than we often give it credit for. But we don't have to be captured by the supernatural, fictional, or non-fictionalism of these stories. Ultimately, the one supernatural act that we do agree with is that you came to earth and you lived a perfect life and you died on the cross brutally to forgive us, people who are imperfect, consistently to offer us forgiveness of sin. And you did this for us. You wouldn't even do it for angels. And then you say we're going to judge angels. It's probably because we're trying to obey you and we've never seen you. And these angels saw you and disobeyed you. So I thank you for that, because the only way we would reason why we would try to obey you is that your spirit, you've given us a supernatural deposit that helps us persevere and believe stuff, even when we're challenged in our day to day lives. So Lord, whether people in this room are watching online believe Enoch or not is not is incidental. I happen to believe it to be true. Doesn't mean it's equal to the spirit, to the word of God. No. But I think it explains some things in a helpful way. And I pray that you would help us to continue in this journey, because now that we know this, now that we finally got here, now it starts to get real. So be with us, Lord willing, as we continue on this path of understanding the supernatural storyline of the Bible for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Somebody give me a water. Also remember that after the Q&A, we will be doing communion. So if you have not gotten your communion elements, now will be a good time to get it. But there are some great questions here, and we'll start with this one. Um, the question is about Azazel not receiving forgiveness. Why wasn't Azazel forgiven if all the sins, all of his sins were cast on the goat on the Day of Atonement? Um, and can Nephilim be forgiven for their sins since they are half human? Or are all angels eternally damned from the get-go if they rebel against God? I think all angels are eternally damned from the get-go if they rebelled against God. If for no other reason, it's what I just said when I prayed at the end. Angels saw God. They were in the presence of God and rebelled. We are fighting to obey him, and we've never seen him. This is why Jesus said to Thomas, when Thomas was like, I'm not going to believe that he's alive until I see the nails in his hands. And, and then when he held them up and he said, Peace be upon you, Thomas. Put your fingers. And Thomas was like, my Lord and my God. What did Jesus see? He said, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. And that would be us. Angels saw God and said, we're going to rebel. So you don't get forgiven when you see God. You know who he is. That's different than us. But then even among us, if you're a Christian and walk away from the faith and reject it, Hebrews 6 and 10 Right. says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You can't believe in God, walk away, and be like, when you die, my bad. It was like, nah. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So even for us, if there's parameters to it. So no, they don't, they don't forgive. I think, I think Azazel is significant because he, so the angel, like, so technically, Semyaz, if this is accurate, led the angels in, leaving heaven and having sex with women, right? Having children. But it was Azazel who taught people to worship other gods, to worship the stars, and to taught these people all this stuff. Now, I don't know what, if natural beauty was the thing, and then all of a sudden you put makeup on, 
Makeup can be phenomenal. I mean, I've, you've seen some before and after photos, like, huh? That's the same person? You know, I mean, I'm for real. I've seen before and after photos. I remember in high school, at the prom or homecoming, it was girls that was like, who is that? Oh, that's such and such. Huh? The only thing that looked different was makeup, hair, and dress. It was like, wow, makeup does some wild stuff. Even guys, it's like, man, you look weird, man. Like, you look different. Your skin is too smooth. All the foundation, I, I'm, I can't get into that. But, but I guess that wasn't, that wasn't what was supposed to happen, but somehow teaching humanity those things made humanity, if nothing else, vain, right? You usher in vanity because now beauty becomes this thing. I need to beautify myself. There are all these things that becomes, and people become vain. So I think Azazel's unique in that sense. He taught, he opened the door for worship of other gods and bringing vanity in, conceit about oneself, one's looks. As far as evil spirits are concerned, would you say that they're living in limbo right now? The ones who are roaming the earth right now? I think so, sure. And I think, but I think, so if they're disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, right? He said, and, and you know, part of their punishment will be to want to be embodied, right? Mm -hmm. So we got that Jesus parable where it says, a spirit leaves, it, it floats around in watery places, and then it decides to return back, and it goes to get more, seven spirits more evil than itself, and repossess the man, right? So there is a need for spirits to be embodied because they come from, they're the disembodied spirits of, of Nephilim. So they need to be, so this is where possession, oppression comes. This is why they beg Jesus, man, can we go into the pigs? Like, why would you go into pigs? <laughs> Unless they like bacon, like I do. But, so it's like, why would you go there? And then you run into the water and drown yourself. So now you got to leave the pigs and go find somewhere else to go. Like, that was kind of defeated the purpose. I tell you, it was a waste of bacon. So I think, I think spirits possess, and they, that's part of their punishment. They need to be they need to be in something. And when they're roaming, it's just like, uh, that's what made the movie Fallen interesting. That spirit, which was called Azazel, right? It needed, and that's a movie, I'm not saying, but it needed to be in a body after a short time or else, right? That was the whole point. So I, I, think, I think they are, they roam. I think they're here. They roam the earth and, and they possess people. I think, in, I, think, I think they do think, well, when we get to Ephesians 6, you'll see, by the time we get there, you'll see why I'm about to say what I'm about to say. I think they're just strategic, right? Like they don't, I'm not saying that there aren't demons in America, but they don't have to distract people by possession because we're distracted by finances and all the vanity that they got from makeup and beauty and all this stuff. I mean, how many women's lives have been ruined by having to feel like you got to look like this model on this magazine cover who was touched up and all this stuff, who had the best makeup artist in the world. They took your body and made it perfect in Photoshop and you presented as a human being and put pressure on people. I mean, we live in a culture where you're defined by your income. So he doesn't need to possess us because we're already worshiping other gods. That's a different conversation. Y'all don't want that today. Y'all didn't ask for that today. Y'all want to stay supernatural. Y'all don't want to get practical. <laughs> um, so can you explain the mechanics of how the angels had sex with women? Do they have genitalia? So we're going to do like a birds and the bees Sunday edition? Sunday morning edition? Yeah. I'm kidding. Sort of. No, like, so, so here's the thing we have to remember, right? So let's just, let's just be practical, like, not, you know what I mean, you'll see in a second. Hide your keys, hide your wife. So, 
Angels can take human form, that we know, right? So either angels can take on actual human form or they're just, it's a fake shell, it's just human skin, right? I think angels had and had, had the ability to take on real human form. The issue, and when you take on human form, you have all of the biological components that are with it, right? So it's not, so we know that angels can take on human form. We'll see this as we move further along, especially like stuff like the angel of the Lord. We'll see what that really means, right? So, but like you can take on human form. So the issue is not, because you see like even in like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They, these, these aren't, so, you know, Jesus is different because Jesus became a human being, right? But even then, or like in Gideon chapter six, there are places where angels can eat. Like in, when, when Lot came to Gideon, he was like, no, no, please come to my house. Let me feed you. And so they're eating with Lot. So if they're not real human beings, then what would be the purpose of food? Right. So if they're real human beings and their ability to create and have the kinds of tools that can get women pregnant also exist. The issue was not are angels really human. The issue is you had a proper dwelling place. There were parameters to you being able to be in human form and you disobeyed those. Now, if we were the book of Jubilees, the book of Jubilees says it differently. The book of Jubilees actually says that God sent the angels there to teach humanity, and then they got corrupted by lusting after women. That's what the movie Noah was about, if you saw that movie Noah. That's where they got their information from. Because I was just like, where is this in the Bible? Like, what? And it was just like, that's where they got it from, the book of Jubilees and a little bit of Enoch. So I think it's just, it's angels exist in human form. Um, when you look at the New Testament examples, you never, only once do you see like the angels were glowed and looked bright, but they're usually wearing white robes, but they're the humans. Gabriel showed up to Zechariah and Mary, and it wasn't, and Mary was like troubled, but it wasn't like he was in an angelic, because most people would just crumble when they saw that. The one time that did happen is when the angel removed the stone of the, of the, of the, uh, Jesus's tomb and then sat on top of it. And he was in angelic form because the soldiers saw him and it said, they appeared as dead. It was like they saw that thing. It was just like, boom, it was done. It was it. It just, they were, it was it. They saw that. But most times when they appear, they don't do that. But, but people could instinctively know something's not right. Listen, my, me and my mother were talking about this. My mom's here, ask her. She got these examples where she can tell you times that she was like, this is, this, that's an angel because of certain situations that have happened. I have a couple of those as well that I remember being like, hold on, man, something's not right about this situation. I, so a lot of us can have it. So I think they're, they're, they could appear in human form. The issue is not are they real human beings. The issue is do you obey God when you're in human form? And these angels apparently did not. So uh, are, are uh, the Nephilim still being created today? Yeah, there's an island off of Lao Pagos that they got. No, I don't. no, no. How you know? Yeah, I saw it on YouTube. So, are they still? Be, I don't think so at all. I don't. I don't think that's still happening. And let me tell you why. Because when you look at the the, the swiftness and severity of God's punishment, like, I mean, listen, angels are highly intelligent beings, right? Even us as human beings, we know. Hey man, that's, that's my, I ain't doing that no more. Like the consequences of that, I'm not doing that no more. Consequences prevent us sometimes from doing things, right? 
I ain't doing that no more. You get on punishment, you're like, yeah, man. Are you try nah, man, I ain't doing that. You know, I've been locked up before. You get locked up, you're like, nah, I ain't going back. There's nothing, there's no crime worth sitting in an eight and a half by 11 cell and for all day, for a long time. There's nothing like it. There's no way. I know dudes are like, I'd rather, I know dudes that said, I'm dying before I go back, and they did that. They did. They'd rather shoot it out with the police than go back. There's consequences that affect us. Angels are not going to be like, hey, let's go ahead and do that again. Now, the, the, the consequences were so severe, I don't think angels are having sex with women and producing offspring today, no. And there's another theological reason why, but we, we're not there yet. That I can't answer why, but there's a real theological reason why I think that's not happening. But we can't, we're not there yet. All right, uh, so this question has come in in a couple of different forms, but can you explain um, when you said, like, you know, some works may have been written that um, are about Yahweh, but they're not in honor of him. Some people are wondering, like, are you saying that, um, you know, it can it can come across as if, like, Allah or some other God is the same God as the one we worship. Mm -mm. Can you clarify that for folks? Because I know that's not what you're saying. No, nah, I thought I clarified it, but I'm just not that good at speaking. So the point is that when Paul used the poem from Epimenides, when it says, in him we move and have our being. That was written about Zeus. Zeus is a mythological Greek god of the, of them folks. Because you know what it is. I can't remember what it is. Y'all know what it's called. It's not Norse mythology. That's throwing them, but it's, uh, it's just Greek mythology. He's the god of the Greeks, right? He's like the, the, the Yahweh of them. What Paul was saying was, I'm taking, I'm quoting from, poets who were talking about Zeus and saying in reality, in supernatural reality, that, that Zeus is really Jesus, right? So the glory that they're ascribing to a name Zeus or some other god, only Yahweh, the god of the Bible, is that way. So what I'm saying is, is that other writings that talk about their gods, if, if they're like in similar terms like benevolent, merciful, all this stuff, that's not, Satan isn't none of those things. No, they're, they're commenting on Yahweh and who he is, but attributing it to someone else so that you don't believe in Yahweh. So in that sense, they understood that even though these things are talking about, like, like prime example, in the Gospels, right? It was like this. How did they get, how did they get Pilate to uh, finally give in to killing Jesus, right? They were like, he said we have, he's a king, but we have no king but Caesar, right? They, under, they knew that was a ploy. They understood there's only one king that they have. And the king that they were waiting for was in the line of the Davidic Messiah, right? The Davidic king of David, which Jesus was, but they didn't believe it. They didn't really work. They understood these dynamics. So they were able to use the understanding of a king, a, a, a divine king, because Caesar wasn't just a king. He was a divine king. Same with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered the god in human form of Ra, the sun god. Right. So this happens all the time and they relate to it in that way. But they know, no, you're not really it's not really about you. You're not the God, the king of kings and Lord of lords. So when you say that about your God, you're really talking about my God for real. You're just being deceived. That's that's pretty much what happens. And they do it on a number of occasions. It doesn't mean, oh, Allah, it's all the same religion. No, 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 no. Everything. If, if something is genuine, it has to center around who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And every heresy in every religion, 
you can find out if it's genuine if it what it says about Jesus. When he talks about God and, and, and these broad terms, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, who is Jesus? Like, he, it was a name in particular, a person. And that's how when people, if I ask questions about Jesus, ha-ha. You may sound right, like, okay, you sound like you believe what I believe. But I get asked a couple more questions, and it's like, well, we don't, oh, okay, yeah, that's it. There it is. There's the heresy. You don't believe. So it just happens. I mean, it's, and the enemy does that, right? He appears as an angel of righteousness. Remember, he has to submit to the sort of common grace desire to do good that God created humanity for. So he can't create a religion that doesn't have a, a God that's merciful and forgiving and all of that. There's no religions that say that God is evil and vindictive and is going to punish. That's not what they did. They, it's all like this God is good and it's this and it's that. He's still describing Yahweh, even though it's not Yahweh because he's leading you away from him. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense to me, but if it's not, then somebody else who's better at explaining it, explain it. Well, I think uh, those um, folks might be in the room so they can ask you. Um, but um, here's another question, and I, I know we're not going to get through all the questions. I'm just going to let you know that and everyone else. Um, but there are a lot of questions. Um, so this one says, uh, where do you believe Satan was uh, through all of that? Um, does any text explain what he was doing when he saw all the sin the sons of God were doing? No, there's no, not that I know of. There's nothing that I know of. I, you know, um, you know, I tend to think Satan is always around where the action is. Like wherever God is doing the most work, Satan is going to be there. I believe that he was watching Jesus grow up a lot. Just like, man, who, who is this kid, man? Is this, you know, I think he knew. I think, so I think he's always around where the action is. Where he was specifically, you know, there was so much evil and corruption happening in the world. You know, he could be very well aware of what was happening in that moment. I'm sure he was. Of course he was. But he probably didn't care for real. It's not like a dude who really cares about people. You know, it's not like he's like, oh, man, my I mean, hey, man. You know, he, he, he didn't care because, again, his mission is still being accomplished. Because you got to remember, for Satan, everything at that time revolves around Genesis 3.15. This woman is going to give birth to a seed, and he will crush your head. So for Satan, everything is about stopping that seed. Because if it's one thing that he knows about God, God doesn't lie, he doesn't give suggestions, and he doesn't joke around. So when he said this is going to happen, if Satan can destroy everything, good. So he's probably actually celebrating this, thinking he's going to wipe out everyone. Oh, but he spared eight people. Dang. Almost. Almost got God to do it. Because think about it. If God would have killed everyone, people, why, if he would have killed everyone, then he'd be a liar. Because then the seed would not come from Eve. He'd have to start again. So keeping those eight people, knowing is what the, the seed of Eve is still there. If he kills everyone, then, he's, then you didn't keep your word, and now you're a liar, and you cannot be God if you sin. So it's like, so Satan, I think, was, who knows where he was, but he was, then glad of the destruction, because for him it's like, good, less of a chance that I can be overthrown. And then it was like, here come eight people, here comes humanity again, well, let's go get them again. 
Let's try to get God to destroy him again. Let's keep it going. He's doing the work for us, right? We don't got to destroy him. Let's make God angry enough that he does the work for us. That's what I'd be thinking if I was him. But he's a lot sharper than me, so. All right. Um, do you believe that Goliath was a Nephilim? And if so, how could he have been in existence after the flood? That's a good question. I knew that question was coming. I do. And when we get to Goliath, we'll get into that. We'll get there. But I will say this. There's a lot of different speculation about, well, how could they continue if everyone's destroyed in the flood, right? From what I read, I read it fast because it was a lot to get through, and I was just like, I got to get through the information. So there was stuff I skipped that you may have missed, and there's other things that I'm aware of that I didn't read. But there's, there's, so the Nephilim also had offspring. They weren't just the offspring, but it was happening, so all that's happening, right? There's people are being born, like these Nephilim, however things work, they were able to have offspring, and, and that was part of the corruption of humanity. Like, it just kept going and going and going and going and going. Now, some people think, well, God destroyed everyone, and then maybe angels did it again to create Nephilim in the future. That's what some people think. And, you know, the Bible doesn't say, so technically you could say that. I don't think that that happened again because of the severity of the flood. What I think, and I, there's, the Bible doesn't say it. Remember, remember this. The Bible does not say this. I cannot prove this. This is what I think happened, though. We know about, it says that God had favor with Noah, and we know his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We know nothing about their wives. Mm -hmm. Nothing. We just know that they were married. We know nothing about their wives. Nothing, except their names may be mentioned in Genesis 10 when you get to the sort of the way that this came from Ham and these people and these people. I think that it's quite possible that the women were in some way, shape, or form connected biologically to Nephilim and that it just it, it stayed there. And so when they, when different generations and different people started, you know how we say, oh, it skips a generation, yeah. stuff like that. I think that stuff happened. Now, I do think God let it happen. The, the question that I think is more important is what would be the purpose of God to allow the Nephilim to continue? That's a different question that I think has a very theological answer, and we'll get there when we get, when we get there. So I think, I think it's quite possible that the women, the wives of them, had within them, they, probably, they could have been part, and I think God did that intentionally for a very specific reason. But the Bible just doesn't say it doesn't say. So honestly, it's just we're all shooting from half court. And then we'll, when we get to heaven, we'll find out if we made it or not. All right. These are the last three questions. Um, if the Lord destroyed the, the earth to get rid of wickedness and things, the disobedient angels taught humans like astrology and the other things, um, why do we still have those things like astrology and other uh, demonic teachings and religions? So I'm going to give you one theological reason and one practical reason. So theological reason, because God told Satan, the seed is going to come and destroy your head, which means that evil is going to persist. What would be the purpose of Jesus coming if there was no evil, no idolatry, no anything? He wouldn't need to come. So the fact that God made a promise to Satan and, 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 and up into the flood, that seed didn't come. I mean, Noah found favor, right? Enoch walked with God, but God took Enoch. So if I'm Satan and I'm thinking, man, I think it's him, it's Enoch. And then he sees him go. It's like, well, bye, buddy. Enjoy your trip. 
It definitely wasn't him. He's gone. Yes. Let's go. So again, there's Noah, but we don't see that happening because God destroyed the world, not Noah crushed the seed of the serp that serpent, serpent's head, Satan's head. So that has to happen. So evil has to persist. It has to happen, right? Because Jesus has to come. That's just the reality, theologically speaking. Sort of philosophically speaking, I just think it's the nature of humanity to worship created things instead of the creator. It's the nature of humanity. It's to do its own thing. So when we get to the Tower of Babel, it's like, look, God said, be fruitful and multiply the earth. And people basically said, we're not going nowhere. We're not everybody. We got the same language. We staying right here. We're going to build this tower up to God and go to where he is on our own. He said, go out. They said, nah, we going up. And so it's just human nature because we, again, biblically speaking, we define good and evil on our own, right? Just like Adam and Eve. Once you bit the fruit, you got the knowledge of good and evil. So now you will determine it for yourselves individually. And people do that. So where our desire, the inclination to do evil didn't necessarily change. I mean, we'll see that when you get to Noah and his sons and seeing his nakedness and all that. Like, friend, what you doing? Like, you know, like, of all, like, you know how certain things you, this is where I can just be self-righteous. Like, fam, you just saw the whole world get crushed through the flood. So two things should happen. One, you should definitely learn how to swim because you don't want no problems if water comes back and causes it. You better learn how to swim. Two, don't play around with sin because you see what happened. And then here we go. Noah gets drunk. I mean, that was, you know, the, the grapes was pure back then. So it's just like you just see this stuff continue to fall out and you realize Jesus still has to come. God's punishment. And if you think about that, if you think about the whole world, right, being killed by God by water, except eight people. That was a, a display of the wrath of God that is significant to kill potentially millions, millions of people, animals, everything. That, that was not even the full wrath of God. So whatever Jesus experienced on that cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. is greater than what they experienced in the flood from Genesis 6 through 9. Because Jesus got the full wrath of God. God spared eight people of their sin. So it wasn't a full wrath. So whatever that was, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the cross was greater than what happened in the flood. That's mind-blowing to me. That's why Jesus was in the garden saying, take this cup from me. Take this cup. Because whatever that six hours was, the intensity of that, it, it didn't have nothing to do with his back being ripped open. It was way more going on. Way more going on there. And we'll get to that when we get to the Gospels. But I, I'm just blown away by that. So... I'm sorry, I forgot the question. I'm just in somewhere else right now. But if I didn't answer, I'm sorry. My mind is in a lot of places. Well, we'll end with this one. Um, and that is, uh, uh, this person asks, if we know our God is one that is just, um, if everything that you said today is true, how do we wrestle with the fact that God permanently condemned the Nephilim as demons for being born, they had no say in their conception. Well, I think that de depends on who defines just, though. So, like, we, I think the problem with 
the term a good God or a just, or it's who's defining the term. And so if I'm defining what good or just is or evil is, which we're prone to decide good and evil on our own, then I essentially become like God and think, well, I don't think that that's my standard of justice different. So it's, it's not about how could God be just, it's who defines the definition of good and just. And do we define it? And then on what basis do we define that definition? Like, what's the basis? Like, where do we get our standard and measurement of good and just and righteous and merciful? Like, where does that come from? If it comes from my own understanding where I'm finite, I still, we still can't even cure the common cold, right? So we have a problem, an epistemological problem, right? We have a wisdom problem if we're trying to figure out, like, well, who defines that? Most of our categories of just, good, and all of it, they come from the Bible. Even if people reject it, they see examples of what these things are. These things exist because Yahweh exists, and they exist because he breathed into humanity the breath of life, which we're made in his image. So we try to, not in ways that can make earn us going to heaven, but we try to emulate being good people. I know atheists who just want to do good in the world. I don't know many people who just want to see the world burn. Most people want to do something good, something positive, want to be something beneficial. For what? You're not doing it because you believe in Jesus. So it's just innate in who we are. So I just think when we're getting to stuff like how could God be just, it's, it's, it depends on your definition of just and what would be an appropriate answer to that question. If the definition of just is you don't think that that's just, and then God's not good then. I, there's nothing I can say to make that make sense. But if my definition of just is God's glory. See, I start with God's glory. Like, what glorifies God? So, so, so to answer a question like that, and, and like, why would God send people to hell? Is like another one, that, if he's so good, why would he send people to hell? You know the question that I ask myself to help me think through that is like, well, why would God, to bring salvation, punish himself, though? Like, I don't really hear people ask that question. Like, man, he could have chosen a number of different ways that salvation happened. He did not have to choose to become a human being, resist the temptation of the devil, be humiliated. You get a crown of thorns on your head. People hit you. They spit on you. You get your back ripped open 39 times with a whip that has bone, stone, and glass on the end, specifically designed to yank out flesh when it hits you. You get forced to carry a cross so heavy you're woozing in and out of consciousness that Simon has to be pulled out to do it. They lay you down with your back already ripped open on a splintered wood, and then they put nails into your hands. They mock you, hoist you up so that you die by suffocation. Like that same God who sends people to hell, doesn't forgive the Nephilim, also said the way that you're going to get to heaven is through me punishing myself. So to me, and I'm not saying those questions aren't valid and they make sense, but to me, the fact that salvation comes through brutal punishment of himself is just, it changes things to me. The fact that God, the creator of everything, said, you know what? To save these human beings, I'm going to suffer my own wrath fully. Mm, I'm, I don't know, that changes things to me. That makes me think about our suffering a little bit differently. Now, if God didn't suffer and all that, that would be a different conversation. If he didn't know, I'd be like, man, it's not fair, God. You don't know what it's like to, I, I don't. Oh, I was a human being. You think I wasn't hungry when Satan said, turn these stones to bread? And the temptation to forgive him? You think I wasn't thinking of my mom's bread when she said that? 
Should I think of the roles my mom makes when I read that passage? Like, you think that those weren't real temptations when Jesus came to give the kingdoms of the world back to God and Satan says, look, you can have all these. You don't got to do nothing but just bow to me. It is real things. Like, God was like, no, nah, I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to punish myself. Remember, he said, you will, he will bruise your head, but what? You will bruise his heel. You're going to affect him. That same God who seems like he can be not merciful also said, you know what? The way you're going to heaven is me punishing myself. That's what I think about when I suffer and when people suffer. When I see things happen in the world, it's like, you know what? God didn't even spare himself. So I'm not expecting my life to be this ease and comfort of because he loves me, he's going to protect me. Nah, if I'm going to be made in the image of Christ, I'm going to suffer some. Doesn't mean I'm going to like it. I ain't saying like, yeah, Lord. I've never prayed, Lord, I just want to suffer. And any time I've heard anybody pray that, I've walked off. That's a get behind me Satan moment. I'm not praying with you if you're praying for suffering. Because you don't know what you pray. Be careful what you pray for, they say. That's not, but, but I think when I'm struggling, it's like, you know what, Lord? You could have chosen any way to be saved. And you know what's wild is all the other religions apart from Jesus, they all say you got to do all these works and then maybe you'll get to heaven. For all the stuff they say about Allah, I mean, that dude can change his mind in a minute. That's why the jihadists decided that one way that we can get sure to go to heaven and get saved is, to, is to kill other people and die. That's, how, that's why they think that way. There's no other religion where the God who created everything says, I'm going to actually take your punishment for you. So that when I suffer, it's like, you know what? Jesus suffered way greater than this, and he didn't have to. So it just changes the question for me. It changes how I view all suffering. But not everybody can handle that, so I don't like saying that. When I'm talking to people, I'm just with them. I'm with you. I feel it. But I think the reality is if you're a genuine Christian and you suffer, like you're in good company because the Lord suffered, did not have to, but chose to bring your salvation to bear by the most brutal, brutal suffering anyone could ever experience. Six hours on the cross was greater than God killing millions of people in the flood. That wrath was nothing to the wrath on the cross so that you and I may suffer some, but get to eternal glory. I think it's worth it. So that's how I think about that stuff. So why, is he a just God by Malik the Nephilim? I think that they are, they're the, the Nephilim are innocent. They are products of sinful angels who experience nothing but the grace of God. And then when they were born, they terrorized the very creation that God made. They weren't like just godly kids just playing with their angel dads, like learning how to, you know, they could just were real. I mean, they, were, they were mighty warriors because they were big as I don't know what and strong as I don't know what. But these weren't like a godly, these were like evil beings that God was like, it's not even just them, it's their actions punished them. Their actions. There's no one that's going to go to hell that's going to be like, man, I, you know, everyone's actions. Jesus said, you, you will be you, your words will, will quit you or they'll condemn you, Matthew 12. So the cross makes all suffering to me different. It's just a different thing to me. This is just me. I ain't saying you got to think that way. I'm not minimizing your struggles. I'm just saying when I think about Jesus choosing to suffer, and then I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, where this dude said even a couple hours before that, now the Son of Man, John 12, now the Son of Man will be lifted up, and what should I say? Father, take me from this hour? He was like, no, for this hour I've come. 
few hours later, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. That's a crazy scene. That the dude who just said, what am I to say, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I've come is now realizing I'm almost there and like, man, I'm not sure if I really still want this. He said, take this cup from me. That sobers me. It humbles me. And it makes me process all my suffering and all suffering through that lens. Like, wow, Lord, you really did this for real. And that's, I mean, some of us don't like people to talk to us a certain type of way. You talk, like, who are you talking to like that? Jesus let people hit him in the face, put a crown of thorns on his head, spit on him. You talk to me a certain type of way, I'm like, man, you know where I'm from? My mother don't talk to me. You know, you, you, you have all these things that you took. Who, you, who, how do you, who do you think you are? And Jesus was like, hit him. And all Jesus said was, look, everything I spoke, I said in the open. If I was wrong, then why didn't you say something? If not, then why would you hit me? Told Peter, put your sword away. I can call legions of angels to my defense. I just think we need to think about our suffering in light of his and think about it in that way. This is why I love to do communion every week, because if I forget or if I'm just in another world, if I'm just terrible at my job, this reminds us of the reality of why we're all here. This isn't in the book of Enoch. This isn't real. This isn't real reality. This is in the Bible. This is what we're celebrating today is the memory of Jesus saying, I'm going to choose to suffer in the place of all these people. Truly is however many people that are going to make it to eternity. Jesus was like, you know what? I'm going to right the wrongs of all humanity. Instead of just punish them, I'm going to receive my own punishment to the fullest degree. That's incredible. And I think every genuine Christian in this room has to cultivate being affected by that. Don't let your hearts be so hardened or it becomes so familiar to you that that reality of Jesus. Go back and read John 12. And then read John 18. There's only a couple of hours in between those six passages, chapters, where Jesus went from, I'm not asking the Lord to save me, the Father to save me, that's why I'm here, to save me from this hour. He wasn't being a hypocrite, he was being a human. Because he knew what I'm about to experience is going to be unlike anything that everyone has ever experienced. And I'm doing it because I love all the people who are sitting in this room. So how dare any of us any of us in this room, take lightly the sacrifice of Christ. It cost them. And so their suffering in this life is going to cost us. So, Father, we pray that we thank you, Lord, because it was your choice to suffer. And you chose the kind of way you would suffer. And so you gave us an option. You told us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. So we also, like you, we choose to suffer. We don't get to choose how we suffer like you did, but we choose to suffer because we believe in you. We choose to resist the fleeting pleasures of sin. We choose to humble ourselves when we don't want to be humble. We choose to obey when we want to give in. We suffer. 
We choose circumstances and we choose to trust you in the midst of things that are outside of our control. We choose not to question you when we are struggling. But we are all John the Baptist at times, wondering, are you really the Messiah or not? And your words to John were, blessed are the ones who are not offended because of me. So Lord, I pray that as we're, as we're going through our day-to-day, our momentary afflictions, the things that really hurt us, the things that have stayed with us our entire lives, the things that have been introduced as new, sufferings and thorns in our flesh that we wish you would remove. Let us be like Paul, willing to boast in those things because we believe and know that you chose to suffer to forgive us and it wasn't easy. And so, Lord, as your body that was broken for our sins and forgiveness, we eat this, those who believe in you together. Let's eat. And Father, we drink, we drink this juice in memory of, in connection to your choosing to have your blood shed on our behalf. You said in Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10 that for, for bulls and goats and the sacrifice of animals from Leviticus 16, that that wasn't sufficient enough for the forgiveness of sins. So you had a body prepared for you, and it was your sacrifice, your blood that was shed that we now drink to. Let's drink together. Father, as we, as we learn about new things and we wrestle with things supernaturally and as we have different questions and things, may we not lose focus or be so excited about things without, that we're not always certain about. We may not be certain. We may be confident, but that doesn't mean we're right. But Lord, may we not get so caught up in those things, even though they are fascinating to listen to. They're fun to hear about. Lord, what we are certain of and we are confident of is you and what you've done and what you've said about us based on what you've done if we believe in you. May that guide us in the days, weeks, months, and years to come as we await your return or we return back to you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.